Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm I'm thrilled with our with our guest today. You know, someone that has been building, scaling, uh, you know, financing. I mean, all the above that you can think of about entrepreneurship. And we're also going to talk about the book that he has as well that uh, recently came out. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jim McKelvey. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. And man, I like I always cringe when an author. Uh, is trying to pump a book. Uh, so hopefully we can talk about some other stuff too. But uh, I'm not just here to sell books. I want to assure your listeners of that. So. Well, well, your story is very inspiring, Jim. So uh, obviously the book, you know, is just, it's just part of the story. So, so Jim, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? You know, you were born there in St. Louis. So how was, you know, life there? I had a pretty blissful childhood. I had nothing really go wrong and uh, grew up in the suburbs, uh, Family was stable and everything uh, was great for me up until very suddenly in uh, right after I graduated from college, my mom committed suicide. Um, and that just knocked me over because we'd had no problems up until that point. I mean, nothing serious. And I got really, for the first time in my life, I sort of was aware of the fact that the world was full of problems, that there were this. I, I, so I had, I had this sort of sheltered existence. Um, and then this sort of shocking uh, introduction to reality. And from that moment on, I've been sort of focused on problems of myself and others. Um, and that's sort of what my life's mission is now. I mean, to a certain degree, they talk about, you know, how entrepreneurship do is being able to manage adversity or to deal with it, you know, and to also the risk whatever path is in front of you. So I'm you know, obviously, this was a very, you know, tragic, you know, event, you know, in your life, you know, that they shook, uh, you know, probably the family to the court, you know, I'm sure. So I guess, how do you think that shaped who you are, you know, and then also the way that you look at problems as well? It changed my perspective because before that, I had always thought things would be fine. I had always you know, like mom, mom got depressed and, and I knew she was just depressed and she was in therapy and stuff, but I didn't think she'd kill herself. Um, and then when she did, there was this moment that I kept coming back to, uh, thinking that I should do something. I should go spend more time with my mother. I should go do something like I should take, a, I should have taken action. And that is the regret that I think powers all of my life now, because it's, it's this moment where you have a choice to act or not act. And I didn't act. And this was, I think, partially because I grew up with, you know, like no problem ever really hit the McKelvey family. Like we just didn't have any sort of serious issues. And so I thought, oh, everything will be fine because everything always was fine. It was, like, you know, like some 1950s sitcom where, you know, everything resolves in 22 and a half minutes. Um, and uh, it wasn't fine. And then I kept saying, why didn't I do something? Why didn't I do something? I had this moment where I could have done something and I didn't. And I've always sort of, you know, sort of taken responsibility partially for my mother's death. Um, since that time, when I see a problem, at least a problem that I care about, I'm like, if you don't do this, who's gonna? Like, if you don't get up and try to fix this thing, who is going to do it? And so that has been, that, like, that's where that power came from. And it, it's from a dark place. Um, 
God, this is weird because I've done, I've probably done 20 interviews about this book. This is the first time I've ever sort of mentioned that. Um, you're a very good interviewer. Thank you. Well, look, I think that at the end of the day, Jim, I got to tell you, you know, all the events, you know, every, I, I think that we go through different cycles, you know, as human beings. And every single one of those cycles, they shape who we are as humans, right? You know, all the events, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, whatever that is, they shape us who we are. And then also the lens in which we look at problems to us entrepreneurs. No? So obviously in your case, we're talking about taking action here. So let's talk about let's talk about that, because when you were in college, you also took action and you took the action to rewrite the textbook. So so tell us about what was this about? I mean, what, what happened? Oh, that was that was crazy. So I was a freshman at Washington University in St. Louis, um, and I was in this computer science class and the textbook was lousy. And I thought, man, I could write a better textbook than this. But I was such a, you know, such a loudmouth that I actually said to my roommate, I was like, you know, I could write a better textbook than this thing. And, and he, he said, well, why don't you? You know, and so I was like, OK, I will. And so I rewrote the textbook that uh, we were using in class and it actually turned out to be successful. I, I got I, you know, I, I displaced the professor's book, um, got the thing published by a national publishing house. Uh, the publishing house asked for a second book. So by the time I was a sophomore, I was, you know, a published author twice over. And this was, you know, the days before self-publishing. So I, I had I had major street cred in the computer science department, which led to this cascading series of ex events. Basically, people thought I was better than I was, you know. Uh, turns out writing a textbook is not hard. Um, it's just a lot of work. And um, as a result of this book, I got invited to be always on the best teams. And that was transformative because I wasn't, I wasn't good. I wasn't as good as the other teammates, but I was always able to make them better. So the thing about me is like, I won't be the highest producer in any activity, but if you put me with people who are super high producers, I will help them get more out of themselves. So I'm like this catalyst. I, I join the group and the group becomes more effective. Um, but I, I can't do what the group does. I can't even do what individuals in the group do. And that's a skill that I learned basically because I rewrote the textbook in my freshman year. Now, in your case, I mean, you you literally, you know, went from school and, and and you never stopped when it came to to building and scaling companies. And obviously, you know, we don't have enough time on the podcast to just talk about all of these different projects that you have been involved in. What have been those patterns that you have recognized over the course of um, of of building, you know, and scaling companies? whether it was for profit or non for profit. Yeah, so it is that there is this line between what we know how to do and what we don't know how to do. And we spend almost our entire lives on one side of that line. We will spend most of our existence, perhaps all of our existence doing stuff that's already been done. And what I mean by this is it's not judgmental, it's it's just the fact that humans are best at copying success. So that's how we get our DNA. Uh, that's how, you know, all the stuff in the room that I'm sitting is a copy of other stuff. You know, like this chair is an original, whoever built the chair I'm sitting in, uh, didn't invent the chair. They didn't even invent the material in the chair. Like nothing here is original, including me. Um, and we spend our whole lives copying. And that's usually smart because if a problem has been solved, then you find the guy that solved it and do what he did. But occasionally you'll find yourself in a situation where there is nothing to copy. And that's when this whole different skill set has to come into play. And that was what I was 
missing through most of my career, which was the recognition that there's this line where you need one set of skills on one side of the line. And that's a set of skills that's taught everywhere and that you probably know instinctively. And then on the other side of the line, there's this set of skills that nobody even talks about because we don't even have words in the English language to describe the stuff that, uh, that I discuss in the book. Got it. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny because I remember Steve Jobs, you know, mentioned this quote that good artists copy, great artists steal. So I think that to a certain degree, you know, that's what you're alluding to is that, you know, everything, you know, that needed to be invented is out there. And it's just all about, you know, making things better uh, and more efficient, you know, than whatever, you know, we have out there. But I guess for the people that are listening now, you know, and that, you know, perhaps, you know, want to take a look at, at the book, you know, that, that you fame, that you fame published recently, it's called the innovation stack. How do you think that they could, uh, they could read that book? you know, especially for all the entrepreneurs that are tuning in now and really get the most out of it, meaning reading it and being able to apply some of those effective lessons. How do you think they should go about that? Let's talk about this idea of the innovation stack. So um, what happened was Square got attacked by Amazon. And when we were a startup, this is the most terrifying thing that a startup can have. Like it, when Amazon decides they want your market, they always win. Um, and in 2014, when Square got attacked by Amazon, uh, there was no solution to that problem. Like, What do you mean attack? Because probably well, a lot okay. of people listening are not probably so, here's what happens. so familiar. Amazon decides they want to take over your market. So they copy your product, they undercut your price by 30%, and then they, then they add the Amazon brand name. It is a strategy that always works. So 100% of the time, if Amazon does those three things, Amazon wins. And so what happened in Square's case was they did that. And we looked at what we could do to fight Amazon. And we looked for other examples of companies that had survived Amazon. And first of all, nobody had ever survived. So there was nothing to copy. And secondly, we couldn't think of anything to do. So we didn't do anything. Um, and then amazingly, a year later, Amazon quit. They just got out of our market um, and actually gave us all their competitors or all, all their customers. They they turned around and mailed one of the little square readers that I designed to all of their soon soon to be former customers, which was amazing. And that, you know, was was a, it was a giant relief. And the relief lasted about one day. And after that day. I was like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Like, this wasn't just luck. Like, what happened here? How come we're the only company that said this has ever happened to? And so I spent two years literally asking myself uh, this question and trying to look for other examples. And I spent uh, a lot of time looking for other contemporary examples and then looking in history. And I found that the pattern wasn't unique. It's rare, but it's not unique, which is to say it's happened hundreds and hundreds of times throughout history where these tiny little things that you would think would die. Um, end up not only surviving, but ultimately dominating their market. So that like the biggest bank in the world um, began this way, uh, the biggest furniture company in the world, the biggest, almost everything in the world had this similar beginning to square. And it was this pattern. And when I saw the pattern, all of a sudden, I had this clarity about all these mistakes I'd been making, because what these companies doing was fundamentally different from everything I'd been taught. So um, that's why I wrote, that's why I wrote the book. Um, and that's why I now go around trying to encourage people to basically not make the same mistake I made with my mother, 
which was to sit there when I saw a problem and not act. Like I want people to be able to, when they see a problem, especially a problem that nobody has solved before, I want them to be able to say, okay, I can do this. Now, I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying, you know, go, go do only unique things. No, no, no. I just don't want you to be completely constrained your entire life to only implementing other people's solutions. And why now, Jim? Why now? Because I just figured it out now. I mean, I, 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 was, I was 50 when I figured this out. You know, it was, I, I wish I'd learned it in my 20s. I wish I'd learned it as a teenager. I certainly wished I'd learned it when, you know, when mom was alive or when, you know, my other businesses were struggling or like, I just got this knowledge. And, and when I got it, like then I had to, I had to get it out. Like this is, this is too powerful an idea to just sit on. So, I mean, here I am doing another podcast, uh, talking about innovation stacks and, and how people should behave differently when they have to invent something as opposed to copy something. And obviously we're talking about people here. I think that's something that will be very interesting, you know, for the listeners to hear is that moment. When you hire Jack Dorsey, you know, arguably, you know, one of the best entrepreneurs, you know, of our generation, you know, that you hired him to be your summer intern. I mean, come on, you got to tell us about this. Yeah. So J Jack uh, lived in St. Louis. Uh, his mother ran a coffee shop where we would buy, uh, you know, coffee beans to keep us awake. Uh, basically, this is, you know, this is before Ridlin was, you know, commercially available. So we kept the staff awake with chocolate covered espresso beans purchased by Mar purchased from Marcia Dorsey. Um, Marcia's kid liked computers. We worked with computers and he came down one night um, and actually pulled an all nighter with us his first day on the job. Uh, Jack was, you know, smart teenager and uh, he worked great on the team and he and I became friends. And then, um, you know, years later when he had been kicked out of Twitter for the first time, um, he asked me if I wanted to start a company with him. And I said, yeah, sure. What do you want to do? And he's like, I don't know what you want to do. And, and we, we didn't actually have an idea. We just knew that we liked working together. So that's what um, started Square. And then the idea for Square came from me losing a sale in my glass studio. I was trying to sell a piece of art and lost a sale because I couldn't take a credit card. And I called Jack on my phone and I said, hey, can we turn my phone into something that allows me to take a credit card payment? And that's, that's how Square started. So, um, you know, Jack went from being a summer intern, uh, to being my boss. <laughs> um, but you know, Jack is, uh, yeah, he's, he's fantastic and has been, you know, very, very successful. Um, but even as a teenager, he showed a lot of the same qualities. So obviously, and the rest is history, right? I mean, the company now is valued at close to 48 billion. So unbelievable. Now we're talking about patterns here. What would you say are the patterns, you know? let's say like the key traits, you know, I'm sure that you've invested in a bunch of entrepreneurs too, especially, you know, after working with someone like Jack, you know, and, and, and seeing other entrepreneurs, what do you think are the key, you know, probably the three biggest things that you look at when you think that someone has it, or maybe that someone doesn't have it? Well, I, I try to figure out why they're doing it. Um, if they are in business for, something that is personally motivating or if they just want to get rich or famous. Uh, rich and famous doesn't work too well because it turns out that usually the path of creation is, is so difficult if you're doing something significant that if you're, if, it, if you're just looking for money, you'll quit, you know, or you'll switch to something else that makes more money. Um, what I'm 
keenly interested in are people who are trying to solve problems that they deeply care about personally. Um, and I look for that personal motivation. Um, interestingly, I think the thing that I don't look for is experience. Like I don't value experience in novel problem solving because frankly, if you're doing something for the first time, there is no such thing as having experience. So the, the analogy I'd use is, you know, think about the Wright brothers. So, um, like if you, if you fly planes today, you get trained as a pilot and you get certified by the FAA and you got to take all these tests and stuff. And, you know, pretty soon they let you fly. Um, and you're a qualified pilot, but you know, Wilbur and Arville Wright were not qualified pilots. Like they flipped a coin to see who would go first. And then they had to get into this thing that they just built and see if it would fly and see if they could control it in the air and see if they could land it, you know, and, and they flew, but they were not qualified to fly. Like they didn't have, they had no certification. They had no training. They were by any standard were not as qualified as, you know, the most junior pilot today, although they were the people who did it first. And so one of the things that I don't look for when I'm judging, you know, a potential entrepreneur is whether or not he or she has the experience necessary to do it. I'm just looking for drive. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let's talk about as well adapting to change, because, you know, I'm sure that for you being able to see a company, let's say like a square now called Block, going from nothing, you know, when Jack asked you to join to where it is now. I mean, how do you think entrepreneurs should think about adapting to change, adapting to the new cycles, the life cycles that the company is going through? Because, I mean, we see that a lot, too, you know, when when an, let's say an entrepreneur raises a bunch of money from VCs and then all of a sudden the company's outpacing them and then they end up, you know, uh, invited to leave the business. So what have you learned about adapting to change as an entrepreneur? So, I mean, there are two types of change. There is refinement. That is incremental change. That's the stuff that we're all used to. Things get slowly better over time. You know, the iPhone 10. Okay, 
Now we have the iPhone 11. Now we have the iPhone 12. Now we have the iPhone 3. You know, like that's incremental improvement. Um, but the iPhone 1, that was creation. So think of change as either refinement or creation. And if you, you will spend most of your life in refinement. You will spend your, most of your life taking things that work and making them work better. Um, and as a matter of fact, a lot of people who start companies are doing nothing but refining somebody else's idea. So I could open a new coffee shop and I could say, okay, well, I'm going to open a coffee shop that's a little bit better than the other coffee shops around. And here's how I'm going to you know, do that. But you're not really inventing anything new. You're not creating. Um, we still call you an entrepreneur, but in my world, you are just a business person. You're just somebody who's copying. And I'm, I'm not denigrating that. I'm just saying that that's not something that I need to talk about because that's all we ever talk about is refining. Um, the process of creation, which is building something that has not been built before, you know, what, uh, Peter Thiel talks about in zero to one, um, and actually Peter's funding my new company. So I got, you know, like I, 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 I got a lot of respect for Peter's thinking in this area, but this idea of a new thing being created, that is also part of change. So when you talk about adapting to change, what happens with most companies and why they stagnate is they, they get stuck in the cycle of refinement. They keep doing the things that they're doing a little bit better, but they never come up with a new product or the new idea. So where I spend almost all of my time is on new products and new ideas. So I guess uh, in your book too, you talk solving a perfect problem. What does the perfect problem look like? So a perfect problem is, it's this thought construct that I created in order to define the area of focus. So imagine all the problems in the world. And let's divide them into two groups. Ones are solvable problems and the other ones are unsolvable problems. So an unsolvable problem might be teleportation. Like no matter what we do, it might not be possible to do teleportation or maybe time travels, an insolvable problem. It'd be cool to go back or forward in time, but you know who knows if, if that can even be done. Okay, so there are unsolvable problems. But then let's talk about the solvable problems, the ones that can actually be solved and divide that group into two subsets. One is the ones that we've already solved, okay, so we know how to, um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, uh, put fluoride in the water and make our teeth healthier. Okay, that's a solved problem. But then there's this other group that I call the perfect problems, which are solvable, but yet unsolved problems. These are the ones that if we apply ourselves and do the right things, we can solve them, but they have not been solved yet. So that's the focus of my book and my career and 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 basically all my work right now is I'm I'm trying to get more people to focus on that subset of problems. And I call these perfect problems because if you're the first to solve a perfect problem, you end up with this thing called an innovation stack, which is monstrously powerful. I mean, it will make you rich. It will make you very successful. It will it will it will have all these sort of nice side effects of, you know, what you know, business starting tends to do, but it's also, you know, an order of magnitude or two beyond that. Uh, because what will happen is in solving a perfect problem, you end up creating a whole new thing that the world has never seen before. And that's really powerful. So as we're thinking then about perfect problems, why did you think that saying goodbye to paywalls was a perfect problem? And how did invisibly come to life? So uh, Invisibly, which is a project I'm working on right now, um, is a way of me taking back control of my attention. So I got really upset because I would try to read an article and I hit a paywall. 
And, you know, maybe it was an article at the Atlantic and I love the Atlantic, but I don't subscribe to it. Or maybe I did and the subscription lasts or maybe I forgot my password or maybe I'm on my wife's computer and, you know, her browser doesn't work. I, you know, like I, I can't read what I want to read. I was I, I kept hitting these paywalls and I thought, you know, damn it, I, I'd happily pay to get past this thing, but it's too cumbersome for me to do that. Um, and then at the same time, I thought about how most content is sold, which is through advertising. You know, most of the stuff you read is not, you know, like Netflix where you have a subscription. It's where, you know, you're going to see it and you're going to watch ads. And the problem with the ad ecosystem is, again, I'm not in control. Like my eyeballs are being bought and sold, but not for my benefit. They're being bought and sold for Facebook's benefit. Well, actually, I don't use any Facebook products. So, um, but Google's benefit. I mean, Google makes a bunch of money off me. Um, and I, I didn't want that. I wanted to take control. So what Invisibly does uh, is it kind of lets you as an individual take control. First of all, you're allowed to monetize your attention however you want. So you can you can give us information and we'll sell it. And instead of us keeping the money, we'll give it to you. Now, we'll take a 15% commission on that, but it's less than the 90% commission that the platforms take. So you en actually end up with a balance in our system. Um, and then this balance gets sort of automatically spent because, you know, we're talking pennies here. You know, we're talking pennies at a time, but um, those pennies add up and then you can have access to all the content you want. So you want to read Barron's, you want to read the Wall Street Journal, you want to read, you know, the Atlantic or Harvard, like all these great publications, all these things that everybody wants that's, you know, usually festooned with ads or stuck behind paywalls. That's now accessible to you. And it all happens invisibly, which is to say that Look, I mean, we're talking quarter of a cent here, half a cent there, 10 cents here. Like these are tiny, tiny amounts, which, you know, if you care about, we'll show you. But generally, you probably shouldn't care about it. You should just let the system work. But it's it's like magic because you can get access to all this content and uh, you don't feel like you're being exploited. Because if you decide you don't want to sell your information, well, we let you stop doing that. And if you want to sell more, well, we'll tell you what it's worth. And so it, it puts you in control. And how are you guys making money? We take a 15% cut. Okay, got it. Now, for this company, for Invisibly, after building companies for so long, you know, and you've seen it all, how did you go about building the team and then also the investment side of things? Because, I mean, you've raised, a, I think, like over 20 million bucks for this already from, from I guess, you know, outsiders as well. I mean, you were mentioning Peter Thiel. He's a venture, uh, a fund, founders fund, uh, which is a very reputable firm. I mean, at this point, you did not need to take on external funding. I mean, because, I mean, you've done pretty well for yourself. Why did you take external funding? I needed Peter's name. There were only two people who I considered as potential investors for Invisibly. Um, one was Elon Musk and the other was Peter Thiel. Uh, and Elon was too busy. So I approached Peter and I, I showed him the product, you know, the project. And his response was, Jim, people have been trying this for 20 years. Everybody's had the idea. Nobody's made it work. Why do you think you can do it? And by the way, Founders Fund never invests in media companies. Like this is basically a media play and we absolutely do not invest in media plays. And um, I got silent for a couple of seconds and I said, Peter, ask yourself why Founders never invests in media. And he sat there and he thought for a minute and he said, we're in, we'll do it. I mean, that, that, that's interesting there, what you just said, you know, earlier, I needed Peter's name. Right. I didn't need his money. But yeah. here's the thing. Peter, with probably the second only to Elon, has made contrarian calls correctly. Okay, I'm doing something, Invisibly is doing something that has 
that has never worked in the history of the internet. A lot of people have had the same idea that I had. Nobody's ever made it work. So why do you think it's going to work this time? What is special about Invisibly? And the answer is, well, it's enough to make Peter Thiel put his personal money in it. And that was what I needed. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care how much he put in. He put in millions, but like it was not, I don't care about the money so much as the fact that this guy who called the Trump election, who called Facebook, who called again and again and again, contrarian bets that the rest of the world said, oh, Peter, you're nuts. And he's like, yeah, well, we'll just see. Turns out Peter's right more than you are. You know, Peter is just that good. And when Peter puts his personal money into something, it says something. So what I was doing was essentially validating the concept by taking Peter's money. So as you're thinking about validating the concept, you know, taking Peter's, Peter's money or using his name as well, how do you think... And I guess, you know, how should perhaps, you know, some of the founders that are listening to think about leveraging networks and social proof to the risk your entrepreneurial path? Well, I think I think you really have to ask yourself what you're doing. Most people that you're referring to as entrepreneurs, I think of just as people starting businesses, which is not it's like you don't need a Peter Thiel to back that. You just need right. any any old money. Um, if you're doing something that's never been done before, if you're doing something truly novel, then you better get some validation because what will happen is the rest of the world will show up, look at what you're doing and say, oh, forget it. That'll never work. It, it'll be hard to hire people. It'll be hard to get attention. Everything you're doing is much, much more difficult if you're doing it for the first time. So then, and only then, do the uh, networks and connections and social proof really, really matter. The rest of the stuff is just, you know, sort of rinse and repeat. Now, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Jim, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Invisibly is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, it's a world where I'm in control. So instead of having my uh, news fed to me by platforms where their goal is to keep me engaged, right? When Facebook shows me something, they're, they're sending me a news feed that's for their benefit, not for mine. Okay. So for their benefit, uh, they've, they've, they've determined that, you know, after five minutes, I normally stop reading. But if they piss me off at four minutes and 30 seconds, then I'll keep reading for another 10 minutes. So what do they try to do? Well, they try to piss me off. And their computers are actually really good at pissing me off, you know? So I don't want to be pissed off. Um, and... <laughs> So I don't want Facebook or Google or Apple or some platform that has interests that are not aligned with mine uh, serving the content that becomes part of my brains and my thought patterns. So the first thing that Invisibly does is it allows me to be in control. Uh, the second thing it does is it saves a whopping amount of time. So I'm no longer hitting ads. I'm no longer hitting paywalls. It's just, it's just less hassle. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of the things that we did, like uh, one of our early product releases was so seamless that people didn't even realize what was happening. And so we had to actually, uh, we actually had to go back and like put some like fake barriers in just so people would realize that, oh, wait a second, normally I hit a paywall here, but I'm not. Or, oh, well, normally this would be festooned with ads, but it's not, you know, like it, we, we actually made the, the one of the first generations of the product too good. Um, so now what we're doing is we're making it a little bit, uh, a little bit worse and then we'll let let it become good over time. You know, as people start to realize what they're actually getting, we'll then remove the, the, the fictitious barriers. But in a world where Invisibly works, 
you just you just feel more in control. You have access to everything you want, um, but you're not being exploited to get there. Now we're talking about the um, the future here, and I want to talk about the past, but doing it with a high uh, degree or perhaps you know with a lens of reflection. So if you were to have the opportunity, Jim, to get into a time machine and go back in time and perhaps have a chat with that younger Jim that is coming out of college and being able to give that younger Jim a piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? It would be the book, The Innovation Stack. Like I kind of wrote it to my younger self. Um, I didn't actually do that. I actually wrote it for a friend of mine who is phenomenally talented and brilliant and should be doing great things in the world. But every time she comes up against a problem where she doesn't have a solution that's already been validated by the world, she, she quits. And she says, well, I can't proceed because I'm not qualified. And my answer to her, which you know took 300 pages, was, yes, it's okay to feel that way. The first person who does anything in human history is always unqualified. You know, The Wright brothers were not qualified. You know, Jack and I, we weren't qualified to start a payments company. I mean, I was a glass blower. He was a massage therapist. You know, I mean, who cares? <laughs> um, there were no qualified people at the beginning of most of the major inventions in the world. And to hesitate, which I've done many, many times in my life, many times to my regret, um, is the thing that I'd like to change most about me. Um, since I don't have a time machine, I just have this book. Um, I just want people to read and understand that you don't have to spend your entire life copying from other people. You should spend most of it doing that. Like I'm going to have dinner tonight and I don't want to have an original dinner. Like I, I don't want, I don't want to have my, you know, my wife come home and say, Hey Jim, I found this odd bush growing in the park and I decided to like chop it down and cook it and <laughs> serve it to you and the kids. Right. Like, I don't want originality in my food. You know, I don't want originality in my medicine or anything. Like, I, 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 I'm, I'm, right. a, I'm a very conformist person, but, yeah. but I, don't want to, I don't want the world to spend our whole life constrained there. And so that's, that's the thing that was missing for me. Um, you know, it started off with a tragedy. Um, that tragedy, in some ways, has been actually good for me because it, it, over the years, it's been the thing that's made me go, well, you got to just try because, like, we know what happens if I don't try, uh, which is nothing happens. Uh, and I don't want to live in a world that's got all these problems without people trying to fix them. So I'm hoping that we can reach people who are listening right now and and basically tell them what it's like to, you know, go try something for the first time because it's different. I love it. So, Jim, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, ha, it's very tough. Uh, I don't do social media at all. Um, I turned, I mean, I had a couple of accounts that were run by people who weren't me. Um, it was bullshit. It was basically a lie that I, I mean, my publisher said, Jim, you need social media. I was like, okay, I don't do social media. He's like, Jim, you need social media. And it's like, okay, I'll hire a bunch of 20 year olds to tweet for me. Um, well, that's not me. Um, you want to reach me? Uh, come to an open house at one of my glass stu studios, you know, come to, come to third degree on a third Friday. I'll be there blowing glass. Uh, I'll be at the bar. You can, you know, have a beer and we'll talk. Um, it gets kind of crowded sometimes. We have typically a thousand people show up on a Friday night. Wow. Um, but uh, you can reach me there. Uh, you can reach me through, you know, some of the companies that I run. But generally, I don't I don't try to make myself available. I don't try to 
get out there. Uh, at least we know, you know, where people can go and have a beer with you. You know, that's yeah, the, I mean, that's the I've most had people drive to town and, you know, I, I'm usually there. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I don't want to sit down and have a coffee, cup of coffee. Like if you, if you have a serious problem that you're working on, um, I will probably find you. So I love it. There you go. There you go. Well, Jim, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Alejandro, what a pleasure, man. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.